Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Happy New Year! Yes, Happy New Year to you and to our listeners. It's the first episode of 2019. Uh, Did you have a nice Christmas and New Year's break? I did, yeah, mainly because I watched the Bross documentary. (laughs) When the screaming stops, (laughs) it did not stop in my household for some time. Mm. what a remarkable documentary it is because it is hilarious but and i was a little bit annoyed at twitter for this there was not amongst all of the uh, adulation of how absolutely hilarious and it's the new spinal tap it was there was not a lot of mention of there's a lot to do with grief (laughs) so that came a little bit out of nowhere but tonally i don't know i just don't understand how they've managed to make something that is actually quite endearing and yet is so full of the most pretentious <laughs> i think i think it's because you and i are as already established such huge fans of the still as yet unremarked and yet totally deserving mm-hmm. uh, cult classic that is pop star never stop never stopping i think mm-hmm. there's yep. a lot of that in there there's a there's a genuine kind of it's an interesting look at a a very deep and close relationship um, between two identical twin brothers. I don't know, I'm still thinking about it. I am. I think it's going to become a new Christmas family favourite. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing it at some point. I, I, I imagine it will eventually make its way over here in some form. Uh, but everything I've seen from it in terms of clips people have been uh, sharing and in terms of the just screenshots with some of the text that people were saying being shared around on social media it does look like an incredibly good time to the extent that uh it, it very quickly reached the point where i couldn't quite tell if what people were sharing was real or not yeah. <laughs> because some of the quotes that were being said like you know everyone's got to be on the same page for you to turn the page and all that sort of stuff it very quickly i was like is this can't be a thing the real person said can it and then you see the clip in context uh, out of context but and you realise, oh no, this is a thing they actually say. <laughs> this is the opposite of fake news. It's so earnest, it goes right round to self-parody and back again straight through your heart. And let's not forget yeah. Matt Goss, uh, one of Guillermo del Toro's favourite actors. Yes, very serviceable as a villain in Blade <laughs> 2 and Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Not That's not really to kind of uh, diminish his abilities, it's just like those movies don't require him to do much <laughs> other than to look uh, impressive menacing and to beat people up and he, he does that uh, pretty well well he's a natural what can we say so usually the first episode of the year back for us is uh, a preview of the year ahead and we want to do that with you me and matt but matt can't be here this week so what we're going to do with this episode is kind of talk about some of the news that happened over the break so that the the slate is clear for the preview next week as long as some massive media story doesn't break in the next week fingers crossed uh, and also uh, in doing that you know one of the news stories that we're going to be talking about just to me felt so big that it just ended up becoming like the main subject of the episode as people will know from the, the title uh, when they downloaded it so we'll just jump straight into the news before we get into the the main topic and 
we should probably start with one of the stories that really consumed a lot of people's attention towards the end of last year, which was Louis C.K. attempting another return to stand-up. Obviously, he, a few months ago, got up on stage at the Comedy Store in New York, and there was a lot of outrage, rightly, about the fact that he was being allowed up, having done very little in the way of trying to atone for the things that he had done, the damage he had done to people personally or to their careers and he has continued to keep doing sets every so often but it had he had been out of the news for a little while except for the fact that like the week before that old clip of him talking to Chris Rock and Ricky Gervais and Jerry Seinfeld about who about saying the n-word live on stage resurfaced which was weird it was kind of like he did the hold my beer meme to himself (laughs) Well, that's how it kind of seemed to be. Like, everyone was suddenly talking about him in one terrible context, and he was like, oh, I'm going to make fun of kids who survived the school shooting. Fantastic. And, yeah, which was basically what he did. He went on stage and in between, like, started off kind of doing jokes about, you know, kind of kids these days are too PC and soft. Why aren't they going out having sex and getting fucked up? And it's like, I'm pretty sure they are all doing that, but they're also saying fewer slurs. Um, (laughs) That's progress. And... Then it kind of morphed into a series of really quite horrible jokes about the survivors of the Parkland shooting and non-binary people. And then some incredibly awful hack racist stuff about black people and Asian people. And it's just really disheartening, if maybe not surprising at this point, Mm -hmm. that he has shown a complete unwillingness to again, like I say, to atone for the things that he has done. Instead, he seems to have decided that the way forward for him is to basically go, oh, fuck all these SJWs, I'm going to perform for, like, right-wing anti-PC arseholes. Uh, And, you know, that's probably uh, unfortunately, that's probably pretty profitable. I think he's just a Hans Lanzer, isn't he? Mm. Whatever side will have him, as long as he survives. Yeah. This little parasite that just keeps mutating. And the thing that I was talking about with my comedian pal, Ariel Silvera, she and I were just like, we're talking about it, we're talking about how awful everything he was saying was and how dehumanising and, Mm. again, this like severe swing to the right that all that really needed to happen was for someone to bring any sense of accountability to his door. And then he just went full full far right but then we kind of sat there and and there was a rest of the conversation and we just said you know but the jokes aren't even good (laughs) they're Mm. really hack like it's not to say that there isn't a joke out there somewhere that is about parkland but it is not at the survivors of that who are trying to make the world a better place the late great barry crimmins would talk about how when you're when you're doing comedy and you're doing jokes, you are essentially throwing shrapnel and you just have to make sure you know where that shrapnel is going and to who. Hmm. Louis C.K. has now firmly put himself as part of the status quo. Hmm. He is he yeah. is kowtowing to the common denominator line in um in America. How is that progressive? How is that edgy? Just talking hmm. of, you know just talking to that group of people but that's the group of people that are sticking around that's the group of people who 
are like, hey, I like you now that you don't understand or respect women's autonomy. Mm, and that's all yeah. he that's all he wants. I think the thing is is that it he's just shown to be is he is he really a, a person? It shows to me that he just cares about having an audience. He doesn't care about atoning because he doesn't want the audience that he had before. You know, mm. there's this kind of really eerie, disturbing, shape-shifting thing that he's doing. Um, and yeah. I think the thing about that clip that resurfaced about the N-word, and it's interesting when you're like, hmm, Jerry Seinfeld is my chosen fighter in this match. Didn't, <laughs> didn't see that coming. Okay. And that he, the thing that I think that's most pertinent in that conversation is that he says, I didn't go seeking for the funniness in that. And it just goes to show, I used to really like Louis C.K. I did. I, I can't like, I, I loved, I was never a fan of his standoff actually, but I, I loved his shows. I really did. And I used to really like Ricky Gervais back in the day. And just to see how they've kind of come back round to this real, like, oh, you know, free speech is the realm of white men and um, they're not the snowflake you are. That clip is so ridiculous, just seeing how the glee on Ricky Gervais's face that he's able to say mm. it. Yeah, and the his utterly horrible laugh, oh, <laughs> which is just, just one of the worst sounds. I mean, that... Oh, I mean, I know we talk about, you know, free speech, and anyone should be able to say whatever they like, but sh- should we be able to sound like that? I would be... <laughs> no, that's not allowed. That's... Hurts my not only my sensibilities but my ears, and I think that's the most offensive thing about the Louis C.K. thing. Uh, to be slightly flippant, is that's not that's not jokes. And this is what Ariel said that I to me that I thought absolutely summed it up. It sounds like an unhinged rant. It sounds mm. like Mel Gibson being pulled over. Mm-hmm. It doesn't yeah. sound like a stand-up routine. It is just uh, mama, you know, old man yells at cloud. Yeah, and I'll, I'll kind of be talking about this later in, in recommends but i watched um a documentary that touched in part on bo burnham and Ooh. his stand-up and i thought that what was interesting in terms of that the explanation of his work was it that it, it showed how he has changed as a comic over the years how a lot of his early stuff particularly when he was doing stuff primarily on youtube was kind of like vaguely edgelord offensive stuff where you know he was you had a whole song about helen keller and he did material that got him protested at campuses and things like that you know kind of he would go and perform places and people and uh, gay rights groups would stand outside and they would protest him and then it kind of contrasts that you know from the early 2010s with an interview he gave like just a couple of years ago in which he's talking about how in which he kind of talks about you know people have the the right to protest and who he he expresses genuine contrition for the things he has done in the past and kind of the 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 documentary in general is kind of talking about his evolution as an empathetic performer and how empathy Mm -hmm. has become such a big part of his work even though he initially seemed to come from a much harder edged and less empathetic place and even though and how he now uses kind of moments of shock value and in his humour, just to kind of underline the broader points of what he's trying to say. And that's one of the things that I thought was an in- interesting watching that in the week that all of this stuff was happening with Louis C.K. You're kind of thinking, oh, it's, you know, obviously, like, Bo Burnham's evolution as a comic is very different to Louis C.K., who uh, basically committed sexually assaults against multiple women over many years and then prevented them from speaking out and ruined their careers, which is greatly different to, at yep. one point, 
telling bad jokes. But, you know, I think it, it, it does show that it is possible for com- comics to change in a way and move away from material that dehumanizes people and it's possible to be even better and funnier with it and and dana gould the great stand-up and former simpsons writer made this point on twitter as well where he made the comparison to richard pryor and how when richard pryor free-based cocaine and set himself on fire and after an absence and a recovery returned to the stage he knew that he had to make himself the subject of the joke because that was all anyone was going to be thinking about yeah and Louis has just not shown any of that willingness or caring. You know, he doesn't want to reckon with the things he's done in his own life. He just wants to get up on stage and have people adore him again. And he doesn't really seem to have any compunction about who those people are. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Uh, Next story, keeping in the realm of terrible men whose careers are on a downswing. It was announced a couple of weeks ago that... Disney are looking to reboot the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise and they're bringing in the guys who wrote the Deadpool movies to kind of do it. And part of the announcement about the way that they're going is that they're going to do it without Johnny Depp, partly because uh, he's not the draw that he once was. It has to be said, you can see that in the in the lackluster performance of the crimes of Grindelwald and the fact that he hasn't really been in a movie that's been a success in a while, certainly one that wasn't part of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, but also because it would save Disney an awful lot of money if they don't cast him. It saves them about $90 million a film because of his fee for being in them and also, you know, his back-end stuff, you know, the, 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 the royalties and stuff he'll get further down the line. And... It was one of those things where I read that story and I thought, on the one hand, it's bad that Disney have <laughs> kind of made this decision or seem to have made this decision based on the pure raw economics of these movies are really expensive to make. They run, they're, they're, they're showing kind of diminished returns over time. Maybe it's best if we remove this one guy who pretty much adds an extra third of the budget to every one of these movies that we make. But on the other hand, it's kind of like, yeah, at least they're cutting him loose, which uh, Mm. is more than can be said for Warner Brothers and J.K. Rowling and that lot. Yes. Oh, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, it's a good money-saving measure for them. Mm. I think, I wonder why they're just carrying on with Pirates of the Caribbean at all. Mm. Really? Yeah, because the thing with the Pirates movies is that and why it kind of feels like cutting Depp loose is the right decision to make because he's very expensive and his draw is less. But he also was pretty much the thing that made that first movie a success. Yes. Because he was this X factor that they didn't think was going to work and they all thought it was going to be a complete disaster. And he so charmed audiences worldwide with his performance as Jack Sparrow. And it was a very kind of fun, lively performance. And he infused what could have been a fairly boring blockbuster if he hadn't been in it with a kind of a a vitality uh which kind of becomes wearying once he became the main focus of those movies but it it does feel as if they're in a catch-22 thing where they think oh no the pirates of the caribbean the license itself is what people want to see when the fact is that all people wanted to see for a while at least was johnny depp as jack sparrow in a pirate movie and there isn't really that much affection or love for pirates as a franchise outside of him because mm. outside of him it's just a ride at disney world that 
isn't as popular as it used to be anyway. I Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think because he was one of the most well-known... Casting our minds back to when the first Pirates of the Caribbean film came out, you had, you know, Orlando Bloom from, you know, he was pretty big from Lord of the Rings. Kira Knightley was kind of on the up. Jeffrey Rush, lots of character actors. But Johnny Depp was like mm. your major kind of American bankable name. And amidst all of this quite silly action kind of um, swashbuckling, you had this like thread of humour throughout it that seemed to be what grounded everything. Mm. And he was doing a sort of Keith Richards impression and how much of the character was a caricature, but it was, it was a it was a good clowning turn. Mm. And I just, I'm just a bit baffled by their carrying on with. It. I really, I really don't know why this is a franchise that they're carrying on with. I think it'll be interesting to see as soon as there is one without him. Yes, whether that will do anything because it'll sh- it'll show where the franchise is or not, but. You, there's there's no Jeffrey Rush. There's no because <laughs> I don't think he's going to be getting work for a little while uh, for similar mm. reasons. And again with Johnny Depp, like, is it is it a sly kind of ethical choice? Is it? I doubt it. I think it is just maybe maybe it's kind of ethical via an economical point of view where it's like, well, we're not going to make money from it now. Mm. I just think of all all the other things they could be doing. I don't see why. Are they are they trying to make it one of the longest running franchises? Is there something in that? Because it's not like Disney need another long running franchise. Mm, yeah, if it was if it was ten years ago, I could see them pushing through because ten years ago it kind of was like one of the few franchises they had that you know was kind of like a big live action thing that you could spin out into as many movies as you wanted. But like now they've got like. You know, they've got Marvel, they've got Star Wars, they've got a whole bunch of other stuff they could be looking at. Like, this feels like a vestige of a very different time in the studio's life that they could be, they could do away with with no real problem. Mm. Or revive in, like, 20 years' time, as opposed to trying to do the um, Spider-Man kind of, like, we had another, we had one, like, three years ago, it's time for a new actor, you know? Like, yeah. Because I... I I had even forgotten that there was a Pirates movie out, like, two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's how much the, the franchise has fallen. <laughs> okay, next up, there was a report out this week. Again, I'm sorry that the news this week is all terrible, everyone. Apparently, all of the bad news was pushed out <laughs> yeah. over the Christmas break. Yeah, nothing, um, nothing's been happening at all, no. Yes. Every year there is a report put out which breaks down how many movies and TV shows and things were directed by women in Hollywood to kind of give a sense of if any progress is being made in terms of representation behind the camera. And the report this year was one of the worst ever. So, yikes. So uh, this year it was revealed that 8% of films in Hollywood were directed by women. Uh, Last year I think it was 11%, so it's fallen from an already dismal level even at a time when there is more talk about representation and people are kind of being more vocal about these things and even though there were improvements in other areas like the percentage of uh, female producers in Hollywood went up and writers went up and uh, but but directors who are 
in terms of movies kind of like one of the more visible and powerful people when it comes to making a movie and selling a movie you know in, in terms of the people who will go out, out and talk about it and will generate press for it directors are kind of like more invaluable in that sense than producers you know unless the producer is already famous for something else it, it the, you know kind of increasing the number of directors make, getting to make movies obviously is important in that sense and and just in the general sense of allowing more people to tell stories than straight white guys which is yeah you know who the, the, the people who have had the uh the the greatest share of the ability to tell stories in hollywood certainly you know since the 1920s <laughs> since um since lewis weber uh, lois weber sorry uh was you know kind of like the one of the most powerful directors in hollywood you can't really say that there have been many women filmmakers who have had that opportunity since so uh yeah so it was just a very depressing report <laughs> uh to come out at the, the the end of the year as everyone's trying to feel like really cheery and looking back think oh inf- we have th- this this particular aspect hasn't really progressed much yeah it's a 20 year low mm. and again oh this is clearly clearly evidence that feminism has gone too far ed mm-hmm. always reminds me of uh you know the h bomber guy video where he was making a he made a response to like a, a sargan avocad petition to get like social justice courses taken out of university this means nothing to anyone who doesn't watch leftist youtube and i apologize for that but <laughs> um he had like a graphic to illustrate the, the, the a comment someone made which was like saying that martin luther king would be rolling over in his grave because of all of this like progressivism and he had a graphic which was like a, a spectrum starting with two racist at one end not racist in the middle and too not racist on the <laughs> side like that that's always what i kind of think of whenever people talk about feminism having gone too far or me too having gone too far to kind of be more specific to our period but you know it, it does always strike me as like a ridiculous complaint to make yeah i mean if only they were it, it was just as wholesome as smithers you know he not only honks the honk he tonks the tonk and that's what we need <laughs> we've had so much honk and so little tonk and i think it's this kind of problem where I think, oh, God, you know, are we just talking too much? Because talk is incredibly cheap, particularly in Hollywood. And I wonder if making this much noise is then making people, particularly on the far ring, even, oh, it's all gone too far. It's like, no, you're just listening to what's happening in the news. Just turn off the news if you don't mm. want to hear about it. Like, oh, maybe you change the channel for once. And I don't know how this is going to change i'm just a i'm just a big whiner ed i don't really (laughs) have i don't have a lot of the solutions i'm not trying to pretend that it's easy for me to change things or to know the solutions but then i'm not a hollywood mogul like if you and that's that's the thing of what was so disappointing and and odd about that jason blum kind of interview that you and i Mm. discussed um and then suddenly you know there's an out you know very quickly announcements of other people and yeah like you know maybe he's just not as in touch with his own company as he should be i've known various different people who are heads of companies who are like that there's a lot going on but how is this i think you're right in terms of the director is still so forward and center and there are and and they are really important in terms of the film's public eye because they're the person Mm. that everyone will attach the film to who's not on screen yeah a few prankish outliers there maybe but i think it's i think there's a problem with um being able to point to certain examples and be like well then we're fine 
Like, who who else has won the best director Oscar that's a woman in some time? No one. We've had mm. a bit more nominations and stuff, but I still think it's just such a small pool. And the fact that more and more films that are women-led are getting a response. And it's not to say that there aren't women who aren't experienced directors more than men, like, particularly in TV. Mm, yeah. And I don't know what happened exactly this year. I wonder if we'll see a sharp uptake at this time next year. Um, so at the beginning of 2020, when we're looking back at 2019, maybe there will be, I, I, I mean, I hope, a Me Too sort of upswing because this is just, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Because this is it looking at the AV Club report. But the other way to think about that and flip around is like, well, that's 92% was, was men. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, how, how is there any kind of equity parity at all in that? I wonder if we have, now that Weinstein has pretty much been ousted and hopefully never graces anything ever again, if we do have more women executives, if we do have a stronger production board and and people who are investing women investors as well because Mm. that's i think a a way that you get to the directors you know it's not it's not a simple case of as if there aren't any there are plenty there are plenty of women directors but in terms of who's making the decisions and who has the money it just shows eight percent that's staggering (laughs) oh god Um, yeah that's that's so it's it's an ecosystem and hopefully it's changing. I don't have any simple solutions, but I would say follow the money and that generally gets you to where you need to be. Mm. My hope and maybe this is this is too charitable. My hope is that it's more a reflection of just it's more a reflection of the difficulty of making movies in general like movies take so long to make that any change in the composition of the pool of people making movies will take a few years to shift yeah like we don't know how many movies are currently in development that have women attached or that eventually will have a woman a woman direct it you know maybe because uh, projects change so much and the cast and crew of movies can change so much that maybe this year or next year you know you'll start to see an uptick because of the last kind of two years of people talking about the 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 lack of, and you know not just the last two years but the the higher focus in the last two years of people talking about the lack of representation behind the camera and that is just the fact that this is a, is a very hard to change an industry overnight in in comparison to say the shift in how the Oscars are judged which was uh, something that a change that was fairly quick because it's just a single organization changing some of its rules and the composition of its membership and those members themselves maybe taking on criticisms and kind of reconfiguring how they consider you know what kind of movies they consider at the end of each year um so that maybe it's just that it's going to take a little while and and like you say it's going to take a, a, a while for more women to reach those kind of positions of power and then hopefully what you'll end up with is is something like what Ava DuVernay has done through her TV work you know her her producing shows and hiring women to direct 
all of the episodes of Queen Sugar, for example. Yeah. Like that, that, that's what you will eventually get is like more people in positions like that who can raise other film, uh, female filmmakers up. But, and, um, yeah, and Reese Witherspoon as well. And you're right, like, I, I think it's uh, actually a very, not even just charitable, but observational comment that filmmaking does have a longer life to bring a film to the fore, whereas the Oscars just has a lifespan of a year. Although they have done quite the boo-boo with Kevin Hart, how that's all still churning on is um, hilarious and awful. Because if we don't have Kevin Hart, we'll have no host. Why? Why? <laughs> Just, you know, can't wait for uh, Sandra O oh and Andy Samberg. Mm, um, Goldberg yeah, would be perfect. I'm for that. So, you know, they've got... Andy's tux is probably rented for a couple of days, so just rolling <laughs> right on, surely? No? And this also kind of brings us on to something that you and I talked about uh, offline, which was the meme coming currently going around on twitter of people kind of posting examples of jobs and more than jobs kind of like kinds of characters that are in movies and kind of pointing out the tropes and uh, you posited that that represents kind of in, in a lot of cases it kind of points to a desire for greater representation on a fairly widespread level i mean some of them are like fairly hacky jokes about jobs in movies where you're kind of like uh, that's fine you can make those jokes but that's fine but, but i thought that there were a lot of them that i came across which were like expressing a real kind of deep frustration with how women or or people of color or you know kind of like how mothers are depicted in uh, movies and things like that which i think pointed to a general desire for people to see more of their own stories on screen for sure. And to have this variety, because things things range from there was one tweet that I saw that I did think made a good make a good point, which just said, hello, I'm a cinematic shorthand. I don't need to go into like every single realistic detail in a piece of fiction. And I think, <laughs> yes, that's fair. But a shorthand is not the same as a stereotype. And yes. a trope can has has elasticity to it. And there's little moments between kind of like, oh, yeah, teachers always do seem to just shout out the main point as everyone's finishing up, um, because that is often, you know, the lesson's not necessarily the most interesting part of, of the scene. And, you know, arrive late and leave early is the mm -hmm. great screenplay maxim. So I understand that. And that's more of a kind of, oh, ho, ho, like we can all enjoy that whenever anyone's in a rom-com and someone's holding a brown bag of groceries, there will be a French stick and citrus fruits that will go rolling everywhere like of course but I do think like the deeper grievances and there's a kind of righteous humor to it which is mm. this is ridiculous that I can sum yeah. this up and everyone can recognize it particularly in in regards to like the dominant narratives about Muslims in western mm. projects men and women and the terrorist that you know everyone seems to be a secret terrorist and I think what I found interesting is that we are just so hyper literate. Like we, we are all as an audience now have had so much more exposure to everything. And I think mm. things are coming around a bit faster, at least for people to recognize. And also we do have platforms in which we can broadcast very publicly our opinions and people can agree. So yeah what this what I what I hope kind of comes out of this is that these all seem to me like little microcosms of an amazing article 
that uh, I think you and I shuttled between um, ourselves, Ed, on Rolling Stone about how after Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, mm-hmm. yeah. there were no, there, there was at least a very sharp decline and then kind of a desert of these very sort of like earnest, tortured musician biopics. Mm, because yeah. Walk Hard is a, I think, what I, I love about that article so much is that it shows how Walk Hard is a perfect piece of satire because I think satire manages to kind of embrace what we know about something and then forces us to clean house Mm. or a great spoof. Even a spoof is like, Hey, you know, enough now. And it does (laughs) push you forward. And the Rolling Stone article mentions other films like love and mercy. And, but at least they're a bit different. They're not Mm. as straightforward as, um, walk hard which is like pretty much eyeing up walk the line pretty much directly in its sights but it has pops at various different things as well and I hope that someone is watching these tweets and realizing people are going to be switching off because and it's this it's kind of the same as what a little bit with the Louis CK stuff it's not even well crafted there's no defense mm. to it it's just not only is it a terrible way to represent actual human lives, it's also really fucking boring. And that's the last thing you want to do to your audience. We can quibble about morals all the time, but if people are just walking out or giving up, then how far is the industry going to go? So keep being bored, keep people, keep being angry and keep tweeting about it because I'm certainly enjoying the meme and I, I don't want it to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so uh, we'll we'll round out the news with a couple of Netflix stories, the most recent of which was that they pulled an episode of Patriot Act, the Hassan Minhaj kind of topical comedy show in Saudi Arabia. They blocked it after the Saudi government objected to it under one of their kind of anti, I think it was under like an anti-cyber piracy law. And I kind of did some reading up on this and the law itself seems to be kind of very fortuitously broad for Mm. the Saudi Arabian government to basically take down anything that's critical of its government, which the episode was. It was very critical of the Saudi prince and and questioned the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia in the wake of the death of Kamal Khashoggi, the the Washington Post journalist who was uh, brutally killed last year. And uh, it was, it's just... It, it, it one it's it's kind of, it seems somewhat self defeating because the Patriot Act just uploaded the episode onto their YouTube channel and people in, in Saudi Arabia can just watch it on YouTube now and it's got more attention as a result. But it was also just really it just just really disheartening to see a company kowtowing to a to a state because they basically said, "Hey, we don't like this," and not being willing to stand up for the work of their own creators and their own artists, uh, just because this country objected to, uh, I would say, fairly well-founded criticism of of everything they do. It's just baffling. I mean, first of all, everyone who is um, out in force for Kevin Hart and uh, Louis C.K. and free speech seems, funnily enough, not really speeching much about this at all mm. and i think i mean i'm glad i got to watch the episode on netflix 
and it had been out for a while. This mm. is the thing that gets me. It's not an immediate response. It's like someone suddenly been like, oh, maybe we should like do something about this. It's a brilliant episode, which is <laughs> beside the point. All of Patriot Act is brilliant and well worth watching. For me, it's yeah. an it's an interesting case study as we go. Well, I mean, deeply disturbing. I'm not I'm not trying to take that away from it. It was it was horrible news um, to find out. As we go further and further into a digital streaming services, the notion of territories and nation states mm. become trickier and trickier because there are there are still territories kind of rights in place on Netflix. You know, there's certain things that you'll be able to see in America and not in the UK, depending yeah. on your VPN or where you actually are in the world. But it does seem to be interesting that well, this stuff has still got around most countries. It's not like people have forgotten. And like you say, it's just been uploaded to YouTube. And I don't think it I don't think it's a stunt for Netflix to be like, okay, no, sure, fine, we'll just do this and then tell them to mm. load it on YouTube. I don't really have a huge amount of faith in Netflix to be a sort of maybe maybe that's um uncharitable of me, but I'm not sure that's as smart a choice. I don't see how far ahead Netflix have been playing that one. Yeah. And I think thinking about Lindsay Ellis and her amazing series on The Hobbit and how New Zealand essentially changed its labour laws to allow, I mean, yes, one of the major franchises of the past few years, but essentially one film production to change its entire policy of a country. Oh, I don't know. It's and the opposite way around. It sets a very worrying precedent, which I mm. really hope does not become my catchphrase of 2019. Yeah, yeah, same here. It's not as catchy yeah. as flumped, even though I am flumped and smaddened <laughs> <laughs> at this news as well. The last bit of news, again, uh, as I said with Netflix, was their somewhat dubious claims about the movie Bird Box. Bird Box is a movie... Directed by a female filmmaker, so Suzanne. it's not that at least, by Suzanne Beer, who's uh, a great filmmaker, directed a wonderful movie called Open Hearts that was, I think was in 2002, and uh, I would recommend to anyone. It's like the one good dog made movie. That and Festen. Anyway, that's uh, beside the point. But uh, yeah, we're starring Sandra Bullock, and they announced that it was their most popular launch for a new movie ever, that 45 million people watched it within a week of it coming out, and... This was generally met with some some uh, some people kind of like trumpeted saying like, wow, look at what a game change there are. And a lot of people saying like, what, is it really like that many people watched it? You know, Netflix are very cagey about their statistics. They tend to only release the ones that are good. And so they wouldn't necessarily say 45 million people watched this, but 30 million of them bounced after 30 minutes. You know, like they're obviously not going to say that, you know, it doesn't necessarily reflect how many people actually watched it to completion, but it it does highlight one of the things that is very strange about Netflix and their original content and their original movies in particular, which is that it's very hard to gauge how, successful they genuinely are in the ways that we are used to in the way we usually judge how successful a movie is by saying oh it earned x amount of dollars at the box office mm. and that's kind of compared to this budget and netflix doesn't really have that you know most of the time they don't tell they don't release any numbers so no one knows how many people actually watch all of their stuff they don't even when they do they don't necessarily say how many people watched every episode or every minute of a film and 
it, and so it's really hard to judge necessarily how successful any of their movies are now. Bird Box genuinely does seem to have had kind of an impact in terms of the number of people who have talking about it and making memes and things like that and and it does genuinely seem to have been watched by a great many people but i think it does also this whole story kind of highlights the fact that it's very hard for anyone to gauge how successful netflix actually are at the whole original content thing because the only word we have for it is netflix's and yeah a lot of the time they don't say anything mm. yeah big old big old netflix that you know, Saudi Saudi Arabia says take this down, and they do. And then we have all of the memes of Sandra Bullock with her blindfold on, and uh, various you know caption this, and this is like Netflix ignoring <laughs> ignoring the precedent that they are setting. <laughs> yeah, it's dubious oh, indeed, and I don't know who decided. This is the film. This is what we're doing. This is the way that we're marketing. Because who who are you marketing to, right? Because if Netflix is a subscription model, you essentially need an algorithm that will let people who have subscribed to it get to what they want to get to, right? Mm. Like, let them search for it. But to keep them coming back... You want each little algorithm for each user to essentially show them stuff that will keep them coming back and not think that it's not worth it, right? Yeah. And I don't know if this is like big thing to try and call in more subscribers because who knows what's actually going on with Netflix's business model. And it's such a weirdly specific number as well. Mm. 45 million, 37,125 accounts. And I think it's... It's a certain level of data that made me feel really uneasy because mm. maybe that's true. But Netflix did this, something not dissimilar last year, right? Which was initially seemed funny, but then was very disturbing, which was to the person who's watched A Christmas Prince 18 times over the past three days, you know, who hurt you? And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, ha, yeah. Ha, ha. oh, wait, they know everything that we're watching and how many times and... They could yeah. they could use that and for their own for their own game. I still haven't watched Bird Box. I'd quite like to, but I don't really get why it's being shoved at me as opposed to anything else. Mm. Yeah, it's it's very strange that that seems to be the one for whatever reason that has broken through. Assuming that it is all natural and that it's not a weird self perpetuating thing where people discovered it because of the memes and the memes have kind of like driven it or like netflix kind of using it for memes kind of like made people think what is this thing you know it's hard it's hard to say it's like Mm. there could be like a very weird self-perpetuating cycle going on there but but considering that a lot of the conversation about their original stuff this year has been about oh how good roma is and Mm. like oh you know they they put the money behind buster scruggs they put out shirkers like completed the other side of the wind but at the end of the year people are talking about a movie that it seems to be kind of getting fairly mixed reviews like some people say it's kind of fairly fairly middling but for whatever reason arguably because it came out over christmas and just people had a lot of free time yeah. uh, you know people were home visiting families and just maybe wanted something to watch and it just kind of came up which is or something to have on in the background while they were cooking food or whatever 
Yeah, because it's not it's not like you know Roma's they're they're fighting a, a huge battle to actually be eligible for Oscars and um, at festivals and things like that. Whereas Bird Box, the the only real explanation as to why they're pushing it so much is a brilliant tweet I saw that said, you know, this is a film that's teaching everybody not to go outside and look at anything else and just look at one look at one thing. So it's in Netflix's mm-hmm. interest. <laughs> Have you shut the outside world out? Mm. And there's a CNN article about it entitled, you know, does it risk opening Pandora's box? And it and it does point out, well, why is Netflix doing this now, particularly when it doesn't actually give any information and is completely lacking transparency in terms of why it cancels stuff. It's a huge swathe of cancelling, like Sense8, for example, that I think hit the Wachowskis very hard as we chatted a little bit last year. A lot of Marvel stuff, again, which you'd think would be kind of a winner to have bubbling under there. Mm -hmm. And lots of original stuff. It's like, well, why why are they pushing? And again, more and more Netflix original films not just um, yeah. shows and stuff as well. So, you know, a film, you can't really cancel a film because <laughs> mm, it's not yeah. an ongoing investment. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit... Maybe I'll need to watch Bird Box and maybe I'll actually find something in it where I think, oh, God, I totally get it. But for now, from what I've heard and from what I've seen, okay, I guess. Mm. Maybe it literally is just Sandra Bullock hasn't been in a big film in a while and she's very popular and people are like oh a new sandra bullock thing cool she is wonderful Which... but i tell you what i've mm. not felt as old in some time as <laughs> a very young subset of twitter discovering who sandra bullock is mm. it's like you weren't there at the lake house <laughs> we were you there. didn't see miss congeniality <laughs> in the odeon leicester square <laughs> and more fool you young person yeah on the biggest screen available my family went to go and watch <laughs> Miss Congeniality and it was great wonderful seeing uh, Michael Caine and Sandra Bullock shared the screen <laughs> you wanna watch me you wanna stream me you want to... <laughs> <laughs> that's one for the Miss Congeniality fans there <laughs> our main topic again keeping with the next the, the Netflix theme is Black Mirror Bandersnatch now this is a what's billed as I believe an interactive movie event the latest installment in Charlie Brooker's series Black Mirror, which migrated to Netflix for its third season. And this is, you know, kind of people describe it as an episode of a TV show or a movie when it's really basically a video game, a very high-end FMV video game where you watch the story of a computer programmer in 1984 called Stefan, played by Fionn Whitehead. And as the story progresses, you are presented with options of what he's going to do what cereal he's going to have is kind of like the, the the jokey opening choice and then as the story gets along you can kind of go on divergent paths as he tries to adapt this choose your own adventure game bandersnatch into a, a video game and kind of the story goes into typically kind of dark and disturbing directions as you would expect from black mirror which has always been a fairly dark and disturbing show and As I said at the start, this was initially just going to be a news story because it was something that a lot of people were talking about. But having watched it last night and having talked to you about it kind of offline, I thought there's a lot of material here to kind of like talk about just in general. Because although I think there are lots of criticisms that can be leveled at the show, at Bandersnatch in terms of its plot, which a lot of people have, I think... It's very interesting. It's a it's a very interesting experience, and it's been very interesting seeing people respond to the experience of 
Bandersnatch. Uh, so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about, our own particular experiences with it and how it has been received. So, so Emily, I'll, I'll pass it over to you. What did you think of Black Mirror Bandersnatch? I really liked it and I didn't want mm-hmm. to because I wanted to sit in my smug little counterpoint of oh, Black Mirror isn't as good as it used to be and mm. uh, I fell for it hook, line and sinker. The thing is, for me, I went into it as a fan of Choose Your Own Adventure, as someone who is used to gaming, as someone who is used to playing games like from Telltale, like the Borderlands, mm. like Tales from the Borderlands, games that don't actually require a huge amount of input from you, right. but but do cause you to basically ask you to make certain decisions for the for the story and for the characters. So I am used to and a fan of this. Friends of mine. I'm still not, I'll, I'll come back to this point. I'm never sure what verb is the best thing to use for Bandersnatch, right? But friends of mine who have also Bandersnatched, mm-hmm. who consider themselves fans of TV, but not gamers at all, just say, I found it really boring, or we just let it kind of, we just let the computer decide and see what happened. We lost interest. And I think that's absolutely valid. I think every mm. every single opinion I've heard about Bandersnatch is grand, apart from one that seemed to be one tweet that was kind of like a slippery slope, like, oh, all story lining is going to go to hell, like all kind of craft decision, you know, poor narrative is just going to be blamed on, oh, you didn't make the right choices rather than like falling with a writer. And I thought well, that's nonsense to me. I don't think this is the dawn of everything becoming like this. I think this is one very specific, interesting example, case study I think it manages to bring forward this really interesting idea of the medium is the message. And I think this Mm -hmm. is it, like coming back to like, I don't know what verb to use to describe it. Like, because I didn't watch it. Yeah. I I mean, I I played it and I interacted with it. And it's not just, again, it's, it's, I would say it's a game rather than an interactive movie event, Mm -hmm. but fair enough. You know, if that's how you want to describe it, Netflix, go for it. Apparently that's an event not removing uh, an episode that's critical of the Saudi regime. Okay, cool. Just understanding the semantics here. But I think, because that's the thing that when you select anything on Netflix, you you click play, mm. right? But this is the first time that I clicked play on something where I didn't, didn't just watch it. I was part of the story. And I think what I really enjoyed and thought was clever and on the right balance of it without being gimmicky is when I got to the point where Stefan is asking for a sign and we realise, oh, he's kind of breaking through where we actually have a point where we can make ourselves known mm-hmm. as as players. Yeah. And before we've kind of made these choices and watched them play out and not really had any feedback but then the way that it's structured we are then we realize that we we are responsible for what has happened Mm. and that there's some sense of a two-way thing happening um it's a two-way mirror and a screen becomes a window in a way because stefan is convinced that someone from the future is controlling his mind yes and and we are you know the, the kind of way that he describes having an urge but not really sure where it comes from and we see this character who we're emotionally invested in and making decisions for. And, you know, come on, anyone who's played The Sims 
I don't believe <laughs> you if you haven't put them in the swimming pool and deleted the ladder at least once. Come on. I mean, I didn't mm. do it all the time, but we've all we've all had a go round, right? Because within these virtual playgrounds, we can we can do this kind of well, what will happen, but how full are the consequences? And Bandersnatch in that way is asking us to take more responsibility and to understand that we're not passive as an audience in this, that Stefan lives in many timelines as his gamer supremo pal, excellently played by Will Poulter, mm-hmm. tells him, you know, if there are multiple timelines, everything's happened and we're not guilty. Well, they're not yeah. guilty, but who is the person making the decisions, which is us? So I think it's an interesting sharpener and, and focus point of the morality of an audience and our responsibility or guilt either way i also think i and i thought that was a really great thought experiment made real and engaging i think then also the way that it played out the path that i sort of went down i think it ended up being the truest black mirror I'll say it, event mm-hmm. in some time because there was so much for me in this of the ingenuity and the real human tragedy and the technology sort of being incidental of the first yeah. series of Black Mirror because I feel like the last couple of series on Netflix it has been a bit too dystopian or implausible or a bit stuff has felt contrived whereas the first series very much was here are, here's the human condition with not only technology but like a heightened level of connectivity of, of our opinions of each other which just exacerbate everything that's already there within us and mm. I think Bandersnatch's strength in particular is that it's set in the 80s so we're not looking we're not looking forward and yet there's this wonderful kind of gut crunching um moment when you realize oh the, the future is involved because we are the future and we are the ones looking back. Mm-hmm. So it managed to not be scaremongering. It managed to, yeah. I think, um, pinpoint how absolutely nuts the world we're living is in now is. You know, when, mm-hmm. when you actually describe Netflix to someone from the past, it's like, I don't understand what any of that means. And Alice Lowe, who beautifully plays uh, his therapist, when confronted with what Netflix is, she just says, Netflix, is that a planet? <laughs> Yeah, that was um, that was one of the paths I ended up going down as well. And I, I really enjoyed that level of reflexivity, especially because that path, if you follow it even further down, is when she says, like, oh, if this was a TV programme, wouldn't something more exciting be happening? Yeah. And then the option comes up to fight her and then you can have a you can watch um stefan and alice Lowe have a fight or you can tell him to try and jump out a window at which point the artifice completely breaks down and yeah. the camera pulls back to reveal the people making the episode and saying like are you okay and like uh, the, the the actor playing stefan apparently having had a mental breakdown which was great for me because it reminded me of an episode of eerie indiana that i'm very oh, fond of but it was um love that show yeah, uh, it's great. And I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it, of of the show allowing itself to get a little nutty with some of the possible outcomes. Like, some of the... the like, the one kind of true outcome, which uh, I, I ended up with after kind of playing around with it for an hour or so. And I do consider it a game, and I do consider the, the act of experiencing Bandersnatch to be playing it, because 
partly because uh, I had to watch it through my PS4 because if you try and watch it through an Apple TV, the it just basically tells you, oh, this format doesn't work for this. You have to watch it on a smart a new smart tv on a phone or a tablet or a games console yeah and it as such it kind of conditions you to think oh this is something i have to watch as if it is a game and that's kind of how uh, i viewed it and how i experienced it was as a like i said an fmv game and uh I i thought there was really really fun kind of going down all the different paths and eventually ending up with one which feels very black mirror-y which is all about time travel and kind of altering events of the past which is which ends up being kind of very kind of like sweet and sad and melancholy mm. but well, the main reason i kind of felt of it i thought of it as a game was because uh, i i when i loaded it up i kind of instantly went in with the strategy mm. um and this is partly a reflection of my professional job which is a, a qa testing for a video games company because whenever I encounter new software, it's kind of built into me that I want to break it in some way and to kind of make choices that will cause problems that maybe people hadn't considered. And so as I watched it, I wasn't making... I deliberately did not make the choices that I personally wanted to make. I made choices that I thought would lead to cul-de-sacs, such as refusing to work for the company that's making the game uh which kind of sends you off on one path but then it kind of still ends up in the same place um Um, uh but does lead to kind of the first kind of meta moment i encountered which was in the therapy session with alice lowe stefan saying like yeah they they kind of had it all there and i just said no and i don't know where that idea came from and then I had to justify it afterwards and kind of think, okay, that's quite clever that you're acknowledging that I made the decision that uh, it seems to completely nonsensical for that moment in the narrative. Uh, and then the other thing I did was on my first go through was I just did not at any point allow Stefan to talk about his mum, which is kind of the big trauma at the center of the story is the death of his mother years before. And what I thought was quite funny about that is the first time you're prompted to talk about it, if you say no, Alice Lowe's character then says, you know, I know it can be tough to talk about these things, so I'm going to ask again. <laughs> kind of like yeah. point, pointing you in the direction of like, this is kind of what Charlie Brooker wants you to do with this part of the story is he wants you to kind of have been to- uh, Stefan talk about his mum. And I said no, and I just kind of continued on with the story and kept trying to push it in directions that would lead to unfruitful outcomes such as having Stefan throw himself off the balcony yeah. uh, and kill himself and then just instantly end the game and that that to me was what made it feel like a game was trying to find as many possible ways to go against the grain of maybe what was expected and mm. what was what, what the story seemed to want you to be doing and there was kind of so there's, there's kind of like the antagonistic relationship between uh, between gamer and game that doesn't exist between viewer and TV show or movie, because uh, as a gamer you're trying to beat the game, you're you're not trying to make friends with it or just kind of passively enjoy it. In most cases, obviously there are there are many kinds of games and you could you can have very different experiences watching them, but for the most part, the game is trying to beat you and you are trying to beat the game, and that's kind of what that's the, how I went into it. Was I was not necessarily watching it to experience the story and as as such i kind of didn't find the story necessarily that 
involving at except at certain points and you know in terms of some of the performances being affecting but in terms of watching it and treating it as an interactive piece of storytelling and uh, like i said having something of an antagonistic relationship towards it that's really interesting i hadn't really considered it in terms of that like like say it's a protagonist antagonist or like um competitor mm. uh, you're playing the computer you're playing the algorithm you're trying to like you say break the game sort of from your professional point of view but i think again like a lot of people have that curiosity and a lot of people have that combative feeling when mm -hmm. they're presented with these choices and there was a lot of yeah. fantastic stuff on twitter on like you know oh do the thing that's good for stefan's mental health chop up your dad yes and yeah. everyone's suddenly wandering in this almost like lynchian way of like do the sugar puffs or the frosties does that is that a thing does that make <laughs> is that more does, does that make a big deal what does that mean if i pick frosties is it great oh my god and i think the thing is is that built within bandersnatch is this constant prodding of the concept of free will mm. which i find really interesting um as a philosophy graduate and a human being <laughs> the two are mutually exclusive and i think because that's it it's you know you can make those choices and get to a certain point and you can exit to the credits if you want and that can be your timeline but you are also pushed back to the start and yeah. you are being encouraged to carry on in different ways so it's not like a complete sandbox there's always a frame there's always a boundary mm -hmm. i think the thing that i'm so impressed by from your mentioning of fmv there is is technically how smooth it all is and i find yeah. i found myself the first time i found myself the first time that i i'm just going to use played right <laughs> the first time i played yeah. it um it felt very much like playing it because um i played it on a ps4 and mm -hmm. the controller would kind of give you a little buzz to wake up as you're about to get a choice and you had to make a decision. Yeah. The first five times it happened, I just went, ooh, because I wasn't expecting it. And I was just amazed at how smooth everything was. There wasn't like a loading screen. There wasn't a real kind of jerky change as soon as you made the decision. It just rolled straight on. And I just kept sitting there thinking, rather than breaking it, I want to know how they made it. Like, how do you... Yeah how is this registered then my more uh, conspiracy theory minded pals were like well netflix has got even more information on me they know that um, i made will poulter jump off the balcony not stefan you know and what does that mean like is it all just recording this kind of psychological data and we're all part of uh, pax that's 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 the joke the the sick joke on all of us is that we are all actually um part of the program and control study but then I think mm. it, it's good because it picks up on that paranoia as well. I don't think many of us are unlike Stefan in many ways um, in terms of Netflix and this data. And, you know, the fact is we're only given a couple of choices each each time. There's only two things to decide from. And sometimes those decisions are the same action, but with a different tempo or <laughs> with a different tone yeah. to it. But I'd be really interested to see if, like Netflix, it gave us seemingly endless options to scroll through forever and ever and ever and then how long would uh how long would it actually take to get to the end i think as a as a kind of thought experiment and i i eventually got to that ending that, that you did ed the more sort of time travel ending mm. and i think it's actually an immensely moving and, and like you say melancholy and and that's the real heart to it i think john whitehead is amazing and manages to ground everything through the performance yeah will poulter is brilliant and it's immensely sad in that he seems to have been 
had to take a break from Twitter because I think a lot of people were probably giving him not incredibly kind reviews. Whereas I think he's, he plays um, his game designer absolutely pitch perfect. Um, so all the best, yeah. Will. The thing is, is that Bandersnatch, the only way that I could... I don't know if this is necessarily like a negative criticism. I just mean this as an observation. It's built for Netflix. It's it's its own thing. It's and I mean you could argue that about a lot of games if they're like specific to a console or whatever. But a lot of what Bandersnatch is doing or, or trying to talk about, I think, was done maybe I hesitate to say but better in the Stanley Parable, mm, which I think yeah. is one of the best games of the past twenty years. And Bandersnatch is doing various different things. It's, it's it's kind of being a game. It's kind of keeping you invested in what would be otherwise, as a Black Mirror episode, probably not great. Because the whole thing, it is constructed to have this. I think the halfway point is essentially Stefan confronting this urge, confronting this thing that seems to be controlling his head, which is us. And then mm. the Netflix thing over and over again. Um, I went through several rounds of that yeah. and then all these particular different options. And then I managed to kind of get through to, to this like moving ending, but then what else are you going to do? I mean, I think it's quite clever because the first time that I played it, I was there with my friend who had played it before. And at certain points, something would happen and I'd come to a decision branch and my friend would be like, Oh, I didn't get that. Or I didn't mm -hmm. get that until beyond and that's a really fun way to do it first i have to recommend if you haven't given bandersnatch a whirl do it with someone who's already done it in the room yeah because you end up having i think a richer experience because i ended up going through like what felt like a really irritating loop and i i probably would have given up if i hadn't kind of had that more group like multiple player experience even that fed into my decision making as well but yeah. this isn't i don't think this is the future of tv at all i think it's a really interesting point of what our technology is enabling us to do but i don't see it being widespread it's a nice point of being able to get something very meta about choice and about free will and determination out there but i think in terms of interactive tv you could just do what the inside number nine guys did with their quote unquote live episode which was brilliant which was essentially utilizing what everyone already had which was their tv and twitter and just building a bridge yeah. rather than breaking a wall yeah it was uh, that that came to mind as i was watching it playing it as well was the inside number nine again also because it's a anthology show which so you know there's mm. obviously a, a point of connection there but in, in terms of confronting you with questions of choice and what it means to be an observer of terrible things happening i think that the inside number nine one kind of gets at similar things in maybe a way that's a little more conventionally entertaining. And you and you're right in terms of like the idea of of this being some sort of like brand new way of storytelling or that this is the future of television it seems very wrong headed because I I'd like as soon as it was announced and people kinda of like described it, I thought, well that's not really new. That's like 
a thing that people have been making ever since the Sega CD. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like people have been making FMV games for a very, very long time, but this is an especially slick version of it. And, and the fact that it's on a format that is a little more widely available, a little, <laughs> you know, a, a massive global platform like Netflix, as opposed to the realm of kind of like hobbyists or people who knew the trend in the 90s or like some of the various revivals that have been done over the year over the years is why i think it's kind of taking a lot of people by surprise because it's something that is new to a lot of people whilst being a thing that is itself in some ways kind of like throwing back to a very hokey form of storytelling because a lot of those fmv games are by the limits of the technology quite creaky and like you say, this one is very, very slick and smooth and you don't see any of the transitions and it moves at, you know, a very quick pace for uh, a story that kind of like forces you to make decisions at a, at a split seconds notice, which is, uh, is is really cool and really a really fascinating aspect of it. Yeah, because I mean, the thing is that I, I can't help but feel that, that Bandersnatch to me is essentially a game. It's the more narrative, yeah. narrative, slightly less active kind of scale of game, but it's more of a game than it is a film, um, for sure. And I and it's just amazing to think that the number of people who are using Netflix and giving this a go probably may have never played a game before, but through this they are gaming, like they have become a, a gamer when they're engaging with it, and mm. instead of having to consider yourself a gamer first and then like get a console or buy a game this is just already in your living room as part of the package yeah. and i mean i don't know i'm not sh entirely sure how widely released bandersnatch is now but when you consider that uh last uh last year about this time last year netflix was recorded to have a 117 million subscribers mm. like i i mean i don't know how many people are on you know ps4 or like xbox live but that's a huge number of people who many of whom maybe have never gamed before mm. and i think yeah. i think that's kind of amazing and you're right there's something kind of this this weird again sort of timey wimey turnaround not thing of like oh it is kind of a return but then it also pushes us forward it also tells us where we are right now i think it's a really interesting piece of work and i think mm. because it manages to not be scaremongering and i think it has a much stronger sense of humor than the yes. last couple of black mirror series had before it those kind of last couple of series to me felt very scaremongering, felt very definite. They felt like big exclamation marks in your face. Whereas the mm. thing that I really enjoy about Bandersnatch is that it's kind of swept away those exclamation marks and it's managed to bring together all of these different themes really deftly, but has replaced it with a big question mark. Yeah. yeah. To me, it felt like something that really pulled together a lot of different strands of charlie brooker's work yeah in that it had the fascination with technology but obviously his background initially many many years ago was, was a computer games journalist you know worked right or writing kind of like comedic stuff for i think pc gamer i think it was the yeah, magazine yeah. he wrote for and he's obviously got a long relationship with video games itself he, he 
would always kind of like push for greater recognition of video games as an art form through like the various TV shows that he did over the years. And so that kind of comes through in it. And you're right about the humour as well. Like the idea of you having a character in a story be confronted by the person controlling them in that story, trying to explain to them what Netflix is and describing it in the least helpful terms for a person living in 1984 feels like a very Charlie Brooker kind of idea. Yeah. And it, it, it feels like something that allows him to play with a lot of different strands of his career all in one place yeah. and allows him to maybe do some things that he hasn't really been able to do in a while because he's mainly been focusing on on the Black Mirror thing and, you know, his the, the various wipe programs who are all pretty much done at this point because, you know, he's got this wildly successful series for Netflix to be focusing on or A Touch of Cloth, which I'm not sure if that's even an ongoing concern anymore, but he was doing that for a few years. Mm. So, so it, it really felt to me like he was taking the opportunity to do something really weird and and experimental with a huge platform and at the same time maybe allowing himself to be more of himself than he has in a while and and that is kind of like part of the appeal for me of the whole project for sure and i think it's a time that is very personal to him because yeah. i think it's doesn't quite like precisely match up with his with kind of his his own personal like age and and timeline but i think it's a world that he knows very well um and has a deep fondness for and that was the other thing as well it was a period piece but it felt real you know yeah it didn't feel like you know that fantastic bojack horseman joke like here is a song from 2005 <laughs> you know to, to indicate where you are it felt like people who had grown up in houses in the 60s and 70s and we're now living in the 80s I kept, mm. I kept wanting to buy everything in the decor like I kept getting distracted by you know I could pick up the ashtray and, and hit my dad in the head but I love those macrame pothole like hanging rope holders just there and mm. uh, the chairs are great so yeah I got a bit distracted to be fair I did sort of my own double screening by trying to find as much kind of 70s uh, rugs and that because I am going through some flat <laughs> renovation I don't think Charlie Brooker expected that. So there you go, Charlie. I did it. I'm the special one. I'm the chosen one. I broke your fucking game. You're welcome. <laughs> we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for us this week? Well, I rang in the first day of this uh, new year um, after recovering from some uh, lovely wine and dancing. Uh, I spent the day in bed with the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, which is a bit of an epic, just about five hours long. Uh, it's in two parts, but the way that I bought it on Amazon, it, it's pretty much a, a one Um, But it is so worth that time. My word, eight, eight pounds it was for me on Amazon. And when you work that out, uh, price per minute, it's very good value. Um, it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't feel like five hours. It is one of the most incredible documentary portraits of a real life person I've ever seen in terms of a subject made by Judd Apatow who Gary Shandling was essentially his mentor mm, and I don't think yeah. I've ever seen anything that manages to hold such a kind of a reverence that's mixed with kind of admiration fear respect but but then also this very decent analysis of, of Shandling's flaws and the incorporation of these diaries that Shandling seemed to have gifted to Judd Apatow at some point we I mean we see it actually happen we don't really know 
why, but you know, there's a trust there that Shandling's happy to give them to Judd. But the amazing thing is, is that we have flashes and extracts of Shandling's diaries in his own um, his own handwriting. Um, so it feels like he has a voice in amongst it as well, which I think is very rare. And this was kind of a lot of my issue with Asokopadia's like Amy. Um, mm. She she felt you know we could we could hear her singing, but it felt like she was the only person that didn't really get a say. You could also argue that with Whitney, um, mm-hmm. Can I Be Me, which I think handles it a lot better. But it's just such a remarkable documentary that shows what a determined but also very sensitive and, and fragile figure Chandling was in, in American comedy and how unbelievably influential he was. And yet, actually, I don't think he's as big a name as, like, I don't know, the people that he inspired. Mm. Jerry Seinfeld or all that kind of thing and how he brought in so much with both of his shows it's Gary Shandling's show and the Larry Sanders show how they both set in motion so much of what we still watch today particularly like dominating sort of forms of American comedy but you it's a really I think for even though it's five hours, it's a very lean and dense portrait of a of a complex and interesting human being. So I can't recommend it enough, guys. Yeah, I'll definitely be checking that out. I'm a big fan of the Larry Sanders show and everything I've seen of Gary Shandling elsewhere, uh, I've always greatly enjoyed. But, but yeah, you're right about him maybe not having the reputation that you would expect considering when he died. I saw a lot of people tweet about, oh, that guy from Iron Man 2 has died. <laughs> or something like that. It's kind of like, wow, that's just, wow. <laughs> I'm going to recommend a YouTube series that is currently ongoing. It's only aired two episodes so far, but they are they are dense and kind of a great to dig into. Uh, it's called Fake Friends by Shannon Strucci. And it is a documentary series about parasocial relationships, which are kind of one-way relationships between fan and artist. It's kind of the easiest way to describe it. She she talks about in the two episodes, the first one, this kind of like shorter episode where she talks about the the, the kind of basically explaining the concepts and the second one, which is all about, which is a feature-length documentary exploring different permutations, particularly within the new kind of queasy world of youtube stars and you know people who feel somewhat beholden to their fans and uh, this is where as i said earlier about the bo burnham thing one of the there's kind of like a spin-off episode all about bo burnham's work and about how he has explored some of these things in his stand-up in some of his songs and particularly in the song repeat stuff and which is a very funny and dark and strange song all about the relationship between fan and performer and uh, i i cannot recommend those documentaries highly enough i think they are really uh, engrossing they are very detailed and dense uh, they go into a lot they explore a lot of the various permutations of parasocial relationships some of them which including ones that are have some positive aspects to them it's not all kind of like doom and gloom ah we live in hell even though the second one is called parasocial hell <laughs> um there there are kind of elements of it where it, it points to things like you know uh, people being given robot pets as company animals you know it's only kind of like old people in japan that have an option uh, and how it, it can kind of like be comforting to have that sort of a, a relationship even as it can also be toxic as well and it's just it's, it's a really great and amazing use of kind of like 
two something hours of your time. Astrucci has some more episodes planned, but the first two are out there already and they are hugely engrossing and fascinating and will give anyone who has ever felt a great attachment to people and uh, in in a similar kind of like one directional thing, uh, a lot to chew on. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. Uh, leave us a review, uh, rate us, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And remember, you can't spell get to fuck without CK. Goodbye.